0: Good morning, Danielle. How are you?
1: Morning, Peter. I am not drinking coffee right now because I need to calm myself down. So I'm drinking tea. I hope that bodes well for our conversation for me to be. I'm not as amped up on caffeine as I could be. (laughs) Uh, That's how I am.
0: This is the first morning in years where I found myself out of coffee beans. So, <gasps> I drank tea this morning, too. So, Did we're on you? the same page. Yes, I mean, Mine was totally accidental, but we're on the same page.
1: Well, I've already, like, had a cup of coffee, but I'm not doing, like, two cups, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, okay. And, you know, people can't see me right now, but I'm wearing, like, this big heated, like, rice-filled pack on my neck. Because I am waking up with some pain just due to stress and anxiety and all that. So, I just, like this is just our world right we have some stress in it we have all this stuff and then you're like well let's just have a chill conversation about gender and christianity Mm, (laughs) oh peter just these nice light topics we choose uh in this program
0: yeah yeah we were just kind of talking about this right it would be nice at some point just to be able to relax in these conversations and (laughs) And not feel like they're very fraught topics. Um, But a good reminder that we're not just talking heads here. We're approaching uh, these topics from the lived reality that we find ourselves in. And so you have a headache and you're dealing with some things. And all of those things come into this conversation. It's not like we can just separate ourselves from it. Although people try and sometimes Mm -hmm. people pretend. I have pretended and I have tried, um, but it doesn't work that way, does it?
1: Yeah, it's it's true. So, but we're showing up. We're here, and it's always just lovely to chat with you, even if they are these big, big old topics.
0: Yeah, in some ways, it's. I guess it's this is the um, the benefit of having a curriculum set beforehand, because if it were up to me today or even last week, I would have said, "Let's do something else." Right? Mm-hmm, the world mm-hmm. is too much, and it might be good to talk about something else. Um, And yet we find ourselves in a month where we're talking about gender, sexuality, and justice. And so these are heavy topics. These are topics um, to which we bring a lot of pain and trauma and confusion. Um, And in a community like ours, which is very diverse, it's going to, you know, there's going to be times where we're talking past each other. So um, I think just naming all of those realities is going to be helpful too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so... um... I don't know where you want to start talking today, Peter. Do you want to talk about some of the curriculum or, or what What should we dive into? Well,
0: I think I wonder if the, um, the place to begin might be to try and take a step back and get a bird's eye view and really ask the question, because sometimes when we're so close to it, we get bogged down in these very particular issues. You know, as Christians, questions of exegesis questions of theological interpretation, but I wonder if we could just appeal to our common humanity and take a step back and just ask ourselves the question, the very basic, broad question of how did we get this wrong? Something so common and pervasive to our experience, which is that we are gendered beings. Um, And then how do we get, find ourselves in a predicament where we basically uh, ostracized or marginalized an entire half of the human population. Uh, I know it's a big question, but can we start there?
1: Yes. And I think this is going to be really fascinating because, you know, you are somebody who is a historian and I'm somebody who, uh, you know, grew up, you know, white and female in a conservative evangelical church in the United States. You know, so we have like an insider (laughs) and we have like Mm a, like you said, sort of like a, a bird's eye view of this is this cultural phenomenon that has shaped almost every element, right, of our lived experience of being Christians in the United States. And, you know, it impacts not just half of the population. Right? It impacts everybody, right? These yes. these theologies of gender, sexuality, it impacts, you know, straight white men <laughs> and it impacts LGBTQIA. It's, it's all connected. And what's so fascinating is that it took me so long to realize that, Uh, but once you start to unravel, uh, you know, hierarchical patriarchy, right, you start Mm. to unravel whiteness, because it is connected to that. You start to unravel, um, I guess, just that heteronormativity that I came to accept as normative, which it isn't at all, and so it's, to me, it was all connected, but... I didn't know that because I grew up so Mm. sheltered in this world. Um, So I have a lot of feelings when talking about all this. And I think Beth Allison Barr in the intro to her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, talks a bit about the sort of the shame that can happen when you grow up in that situation and Mm. um, don't rage against it from day one and um, are just trying to survive in that world. Uh, So I'm coming into this conversation with some of those feelings, like, why didn't I try and tear down the patriarchy from day one? You know, it's just a question I have. Um, I don't know if anybody else reading these books or talking about these topics has that same feeling, but I just want to sort of throw that out there for how I'm feeling a little bit today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're someone who took that journey in in a different direction than the one that Beth Allison Barr has taken. Um, and she still finds herself very much inside of the evangelical world, appealing to um, the logic that might um, register with them, right? Mm-hmm, and so I would mm-hmm. imagine that your experience of reading a book like this, it's going to highlight some of those differences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, another thing to note about about this book is, and I wonder if, as the author, she herself would say this, that this is a book for the evangelical community and therefore it might have less relevance for people outside of that community. Mm, mm -hmm. And I just want to just make one note at the outset to say that um, I think it's really helpful to engage these kinds of works that are targeted towards a very specific audience um, as outsiders to that community because I think it gives us a window into the fact that we're all doing this. We're all approaching it from our very kind of embodied, situated perspectives, and so I would say to my uh, siblings who are who find themselves in more progressive Christian communities, um, think about think about how how long your church, how long your tradition has been ordaining women, mm. and if it is the case, I, I think in most mainline American denominations, it's really since the 1970s that this movement or shift happened that's less than 50 years or maybe just a little over 50 years Mm. and that's not a very long time when you think about the overarching history of the church and so we're all coming from a place where we're beginning to open our eyes to the extent of the harm that has been done by a christian patriarchy that has really permeated so much of christian thinking
1: Okay, that is really helpful to me, Peter, because I, I, you know, I grew up so similar to Beth Allison Bard that it's just like, there's that world that's, you know, terrible, (laughs) complementarian, and everybody else, you know, got to experience a more, you know, liberative way of being in the world. But I think you're right, like, patriarchy affects us all. And these... (laughs) You know, I don't know if we want to call it like the dominant culture, the status quo. Like to me, there's so many commonalities when approaching just this drive to all fall in line and to have this, you know, ordered world and this hierarchy of who God wants in charge and who should not be in charge. And I don't know if if it's just hierarchical thinking. Um, I know you were talking a little bit in the program about sort of like this black white binary way of thinking and how can we just continue to move past that no matter how we grew up and how much this impacted us personally like we're all impacted by a patriarchal society in which we live and so how do we move forward but it I, it just brings up so many emotions like um Some of them I don't really want to deal with right now just because we're Mm. in the midst of COVID. We're in the midst of, you know, a war going on with Ukraine. And I was like, do I really want to um, unpack what it was like being told I was a second-class citizen in the eyes of God? Mm. No, I don't want to. I would rather spend my time uh, being like, I think God really loves me. (laughs) And um, I don't think God has hierarchy. So um, that's just it's just a tricky topic to engage in because it brings up some of these core identity issues. And I know you're so careful. You're so careful when you bring this up. Um, I wondered if you chose, uh, you know, the making of biblical womanhood sort of because it's this historian approach. And I just really quickly wanted to ask you a question because you are Mm -hmm. our resident historian. Um, what you felt about Beth, just starting off the book and just really making it clear where she's coming from her history background and who she's writing to, because I am also reading Christina Cleveland's book, God is a black woman. And you know, Christina Mm -hmm. Cleveland does the same thing is just like, this is who I am. This is where I'm coming from. And I am writing to black women um, as I unpack all of this stuff. And she's such a wonderful scholar. And so as I read it, I'm like, this is not discrediting her being a scholar it's helping me the reader say this is who you know Dr. Christina Cleveland is and this is who she's writing to and I still get to learn so much um, from that. So I just wondered if you wanted to quickly talk about that element of, of this book and others we're seeing happening in publishing right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Well my quick response is I wish more people would do that because it dispels the notion that any one author because they're somehow the expert on this topic chosen to write this particular book that somehow they have all of the answers and mm-hmm. that's never true. Mm-hmm. And so someone like Beth Allison Barr saying, hey, I'm approaching this topic from this position. You can disagree with me in, and if you're not in this social location, of course you're going to have different perspectives. It's so refreshing to have that named for the author to give that permission to say, it's fine if you disagree with me. It's it's In fact, it's completely normal for you to see these matters in a different light because I'm seeing it from my very particular vantage point. I think that, uh, I mean, scholars haven't really done this, still aren't really doing this because I think uh, they want to portray this notion that they are giving the objective viewpoint on these matters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, I think some scholars just assume, well, I don't need to state the obvious. Of course, I'm um, approaching... Uh, these questions from the perspective that I have but I think we've just been shown over the course of historical events that there is a dominant view and there are a variety of views that circulate around the dominant view and it's really important to name because there's also relations of power that shape how these conversations take place I feel like it's refreshing for this book to give a very uh, specific um, disclaimer about the perspective from which it's being written
1: Yeah. I just love it. I love it. And I, I'm having a hard time thinking about men who I've seen do that similarly. Um, Mm -hmm. and I hope, I hope that it kind of catches on for everybody to just say, Hey, this is uh, where I'm coming from and this is who I'm writing to. I I just think it's going to be so helpful because yeah, universalizing, um, the white patriarchal Christian experience, you know, it's just a part of my background that I continue to need help with to say that's Mm -hmm. actually not the universal viewpoint. That's the viewpoint of my culture and my community. And it's just been so helpful to be able to say that. And Mm -hmm. in the end, it just is really good news. It's really good news that that's not the universal (laughs) way of looking at God. Right. So it's been helpful for me
0: you don't feel like you're bringing down right all of human understanding or or all of um Christendom by asking questions that ought to be asked
1: well it's funny you say that because sometimes i do as you know peter i uh, just finished working a book about dorothy day and talking about yes. you know gender is she's she was somebody who just defied gender norms like from a very early age and was a very liberated woman you know back in the time when hardly anybody was um, and I just enjoyed so much immersing myself in the life of somebody who did not conform to gender norms uh, but was also a part of a tradition, which is Roman Catholicism, you know, that's very patriarchal, very hierarchical, and so there's this tension for me and and hopefully others who want to engage with her story of saying how does she how did she do that? Like how did she keep these two things, you know, this liberative uh, way of being a person in the world and also being a part of this hierarchy. Now studying Dorothy's life, I just loved it. I was like, this is totally possible. And then I had this sort of um, crashing back to earth moment. Where uh, I started to, because Dorothy Day is in the process of becoming a canonized saint in the Roman Catholic Church, all these issues started arising, especially because it was all, you know, male priests that brought forward her cause for canonization. And they uh, gave that, you know, request to a room full of men, no women, you know, are allowed to have a say in who gets to be canonized, and the way they categorized her life was, um, did not match up with how I view Dorothy's life, and instead, it was much more like, she's a great person to have on our side in the culture wars. You know, as we're fighting for religious freedom, Dorothy Day would be with us, and I was like, what? And then researching, like, the car- the the Archbishop of New York who really wants this to be basically on his resume that he got Dorothy Day canonized, who uh, has such, his decades-long history of corruption in so many areas, including covering up, you know, sexual abuse, including um, hiding some financial assets of the Roman Catholic Church so that victims of sexual abuse by priests cannot access those funds. And, um, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I went from loving Dorothy Day and finding a lot of comfort in her story to saying these men better get her name out of their mouth and I will like try and take down the Roman Catholic Church. So I- I'm just saying I'm, I'm like that kind of person who just goes from zero to a hundred sometimes. Yeah. And just saying like the magnitude of the problem is is actually quite overwhelming. When you look at even this pathway to canonization for Dorothy, it has opened up some things i would prefer to not think about right Mm. i love thinking about catholic social justice teaching like that stuff is the shit excuse me for swearing but like the popes you know in even like the late you know 1800s were talking about labor and capital and the rights of the common man and why unions we're good all this stuff is so cool mm. and then i crash back to reality of these oppressive men are just controlling mm. the narrative they control the money they control the power and they want to control dorothy day's life and that is enraging to me just yeah. enraging um, mm. <laughs> so that was a ramble i'm sorry but i do think it speaks to the tensions of trying to to um engage With the history of Christianity, when it comes um, to women and even women who break the rules, the outliers, right? They're fine with some outliers. That is the truth about the white, you know, heteronormative patriarchy. They're okay with some Mm. outliers, but usually it for a very specific purpose. And this is a part of my story, right? I grew up in this world, I was a really strong, intense young woman. And so I was like, I guess I'm going to become a missionary because that's the only mm. path I see for a young woman who is very religious and very intense. Like there's literally no other path for me because you can't be a pastor. You can't yeah. do all that stuff. And and obviously unpacking that it's, it's so deeply racist and so deeply sexist. Mm. Um, it's pretty hard to even try and unpack all of that saying I was trying to be myself, but in this world um, that actually pushed me to be in a place that was deeply hurtful, right. To other people, Um, this, this colonizing mentality of I was useful to the patriarchy because I was going to convert people, you know, to white evangelicalism And so that's that's just a part of my story that I have to wrestle with um, the rest of my life. And I think only now, you know, I'm about to turn 38 and I'm like, you know, that part of my life is just not going to go away. It's always going to be there Mm -hmm. and it's always going to be a part of my story. And how can I continue to process this um, in a way that is honoring to other people, other cultures even my freaking neighbors. I still have tons of Muslim neighbors. And it's just so mm. fascinating to be like, yeah, 10 years ago, right? I had this stress, this pressure to say, um, I need to convert you. Um, mm. And I've dismantled a lot of that. But it's its still very complicated. I just rambled a lot, Peter. What? What? <laughs> I don't know. I got to give you a chance to talk here.
0: <laughs> no, I, I love this because there's so much brilliance and complexity to all the things that you just mentioned. I wanna go back to what you were saying about Dorothy Day and the history, the person, Mm -hmm. um, her life, and then all of the attempts to manage and appropriate and benefit from the story of her life. Because Mm -hmm. I think there is sort of this, there's the actual history, the real life, um, the full scope of which uh, historians recognize uh, they're never going to be able to fully retrieve. And then there is this sort of um, attempt by people who come later on to appropriate, to, to take that narrative, as you said, and to direct it towards their causes, to put it in the service of their agenda and their aspirations in life. And this happens all the time. And I don't know that it can be avoided, but it ought, there ought to be some awareness and then some accountability and then some community effort in corralling all these narrative streams so that we can arrive at a healthier understanding of the complexity of the past. Um, And I think part of what happens when someone like Beth Allison Barr says, I have a very specific take on these matters, Mm -hmm. um, what you realize is, oh, this is one piece of the puzzle. And there are many other pieces and there are many other voices and perspectives that need to be invited to be at the table so that we can make advances with regard to these topics and strive for justice. And then what you said about your own experience of growing up in the church and feeling like your world was so limited, like your opportunities or the ways that you could move forward was so limited. Part of um, your liberative process is realizing those narratives don't have to confine you to a certain trajectory that you can you can pursue other directions. You can imagine having a conversation with your Muslim neighbor without feeling guilty if you don't mention the name of Jesus, right? Like, that's okay. It's okay for you to just be a person in that moment listening and, um, and cultivating uh, a friendship. So all of these things I think are so important to the kind of conversation and work we're trying to do, which is to say, how can we unveil the ways in which we have duped ourselves into ways of thinking that categorize people into these lower rungs of hierarchy and how can we obliterate those oppressive systems and find pathways to justice Uh, easier said than done but it sounds like you're someone who's been on that process and you don't have all the answers but you have some wisdom and you have some questions uh, that we can that we can work with
1: yeah, and I, I think one thing I was thinking about is just, um, you know, there's there's this term that keeps being thrown out a lot, right, around abusive people and abusive institutions, which is you know gaslighting, and and that is, I don't know if that's like a common experience for people who grow grow up in some you know more conservative places, but I've been thinking. Like having some pretty random memories of when I was at Bible college, you know, to become a missionary, um, you know, sitting through a class on church history, going through Paul and um, actually it wasn't church history. It was just like church practice like for today. And so talking Mm. about Paul and women and why, you know, that's why women can't be head pastors. And it was like the cool liberal professor at my school because he went to a Jesuit school. Everybody else went to Dallas, you know, seminary. Um, He went to a Jesuit place so he was like considered more liberal and I um, started like sobbing in the class because mm-hmm. you know this teacher I really cared about and felt safe with was just very you know very blase about uh, just talking about this is how it is right this is you mm-hmm. know espousing espousing uh complementarian theology like yeah this is what we believe this is what it is and I, and I started crying at the end of class he just kept saying, oh, but Danielle, God God loves women. God loves women. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there crying, say, and inside I'm saying, you just spelled out why he doesn't mm-hmm. love women as much as men. And yet I need to stop crying because it's making you and other people uncomfortable. Um, that's a devastating realization. And just the way he interpreted Paul, right, is just like, yeah, this is just how it is. And, and a few things have happened like that in my life, including going to a church that was very conservative. Um, they were very into missions, which is why I love that church. But even little things like, uh, you know, I have been working with refugees in my city for forever. And so people like to support that. And they'd always have me and my husband, Chris, would go up on stage to talk about English classes or whatever and give the microphone to Crispin and he would be like Mm. why am I up here and he would just hand the microphone to me and then I would just be off to the races and just you know do (laughs) it and any chance I got I was up there being like let's fast and pray for Somalia because they're experiencing Mm. famine and I would just be so intense but Eventually, we started laughing about how often they were like, Crispin and Danielle come up. And they always gave the microphone to him. And we just thought it was hilarious. And now I'm like, ah, it's not that funny um, in some ways. But we're trying to subvert it. And I remember they had one sermon that was so intensely patriarchal. Worse than one I've ever heard. And included stuff like, because women, you know, Eve ate the g- apple in the garden. Women are more prone to be deceived. And so if a woman ever even wants to talk even a little bit at church, they, she has to go tell the elders what she's going to say just because they can't be trusted as much. You know, women can't be. And I was just devastated. And all my friends that went to this church, I tried talking to them about it. And they're like, yeah, that's that's what the church believes. It's always has, They've always believed it. And I was like, then why am I the only one freaking out about mm-hmm. this? And so that's another experience I had growing up in these spaces is like, I wasn't accepting it. I knew it was bullshit like and the cultural pressure around me to not bring that up was really Mm. intense and I do think Beth Allison Barr also brings that up in her book a little bit and it reminds me of all the work I've done on um, you know systems of abuse and the role that enablers play in allowing Mm. abuse to continue on or abusive situations to continue on and how uh, you know White evangelicalism has been so good at roping us all in as enablers to keep these systems going. Uh, that's just something I've been thinking about. Even like my uh, strong, intense, outspoken, you know, female friends, when I would say, did you hear that sermon? Like, can you believe what they said? They're like, yeah, that's just what the church believes. It was fa- it's fascinating to kind of uh, think about all that. And that was, yeah, that was like, what, 15 years ago, uh, maybe less, 12 years ago. It's not that long ago.
0: I think um, Beth Allison Barr talks about this in her book um, at length. It's the fallacy of the 2,000 years of church history can't possibly Mm -hmm. be wrong argument. And there's a kind of both sideism I think, inside of Christian patriarchy and complementarianism that says this is the way it's always been. And in Mm -hmm. other places, uh, they're going to want to say, The world is wrong, and the church is so much better. It's so much wiser than the world, and we are renewing the world and reforming the world. But there's something about being able to see through the fallacy of that argument to say, this is the way it's always been, and therefore it can't be touched. And what you're saying is, there is something else that you had access to that enabled you to see the harm of this way of thinking without revisiting or like picking at the scabs of old wounds. Can you just um, take us through what that was like? Like, what is the process? Because I think it's so daunting for people. Like, yeah, I don't want to mess with 2,000 years of church history. But there are ways around that, I think. And so I'm curious to hear how you approach that.
1: Okay, this is great, Peter, because my little inner white evangelical just woke up while you were talking. And I was like, I think a really important, piece of this is learning to trust your own intuition and that is a really um tried white evangelicalism tries to beat that out of you to to not trust your own intuition right the heart is Mm. deceitful and wickedly vain you know like you must only trust in the lord and so uh there is this element of you have to just trust your distrust your own intuition especially if it contradicts you know what the pastor in front is saying. And so I do not have the answers in this area. I am very interested in pursuing a healthier relationship to my intuition. I don't want to like fully trust it. You know, I'm still, I, I am a white woman. You know, I need other perspectives to help me. So for me, I just desperately wish there was like a perfect way to um, To answer this question, but I'm just not sure that there is. I will okay. say uh, learning from people who have done the hard work, and this is what Crispin and I talk about all the time, reading the testimonies specifically of queer people has unlocked mm. something for me. Um, in this regard, I don't, I honestly don't feel like I have the skills to do the work that needs to be done to unravel, you know, how deep white patriarchy is within me. And so I rely on the testimonies of queer Christians, of black womanist theologians. You know, it, I don't want this to sound cliche because it's really not cliche for me it's that i literally was not raised with an imagination for a god who was obsessed with people who were told they don't belong right in god's kingdom to feast right at this table with god and so that's just been so powerful for me because i don't always have the imagination for myself but Mm -hmm. other people do and i can't believe that i get to just experience glimpses of these such hard-earned experiences of faith i already mentioned that i'm reading christina cleveland's book god is a black woman and Mm. you know while reading it there's just this sense that like i can't believe you are still I don't know if she would call herself a Christian exactly, but just like mm. she's somebody who clings to faith, who, you know, does pilgrimages in France to see all the black Madonnas. Like this is a person who is obsessed with God still after all, mm. you know, that she has mm. experienced. Yeah. She's obsessed with God. And I'm just like, wow, like this is so powerful and helps me be like, I think I can keep doing this work because mm. I think, you know, both you and I have already said like it's not going to be fun and this issue is going to keep coming up for you if this is a part of your faith history if it's a part of your you know cultural background but also unfortunately it impacts all of us because these you know (laughs) christian nationalist patriarchal people are trying literally to be in control of our country um so it does impact everybody uh but in this deep like how do we unpack some of this stuff it's like yeah i it kind of just seems common sense to say the only way we will be able to make sense of this is to listen to the people who've been excluded um for how to move forward so that's that's what i've been doing i just Mm. in some ways it's just i'm just so grateful i think about all the books i have like on my nightstand right now and it's just Mm. there's so many things wrong in the world peter But like Mm -hmm. the fact that I have five books right now from black women that I think are just Mm -hmm. some of the coolest people in the world and they're all writing about faith and it's all extremely different, like very, very different from each other. Like that is pretty exciting, actually. I have to remind myself, like, you know, there's some good news here. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. There's some things
1: are changing.
0: There's so much good news if you if we know where to look. Uh, I, and I've, I so very much appreciate that you basically said there's no such thing as a monolithic unified textbook on 2,000 years of church history. Mm-hmm. It, like, such a book does not exist. Instead, there are so many different perspectives and different traditions and different ways of wrestling with God and trying to figure out what it means to be a person who is faithful to this God in this world. Um, and you're just listening to additional voices, more voices. And learning along the way. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I think that's a really profoundly beautiful answer.
1: Can I ask you a question? So when when dealing with big picture topics like race or sexism, um, what do you think about this sort of like, I don't even know if it's like a, a developmental response to like, mm-hmm. if you grew up with, in these I mean we all we all are living in like a racialized society, right, that is impacted by patriarchy. I just th- I just see there's so many different ways to approach this. And like Beth Allison Barr is like using the tools of white evangelicalism, right, to try and reach them. Christina Cleveland is like, no. Like, I am not doing that anymore, right? And instead, it's going to be just from this embodied, more mystical place of like, I just don't believe that anymore. Like, and this is what I believe. Like, I'm just wondering if you can speak to a little bit of some of this tension we can have when saying like, do we disregard it all? Do we try and convince people who still believe that? Like, um, I don't know if this question is making sense, but but you know what I'm saying? It's like there's mm. these different ways of approaching and sometimes I see in myself, right? Whatever, like developmentally, right? Whatever phase you just came out of, you tend to like despise mm. <laughs> because <laughs> that's like like teenagers think tweens are like the worst, right? And um, mm. uh, just stuff like that. It's It's just fascinating to think about how this can maybe even show up when we're talking about unpacking these these bigger issues yeah
0: yeah no I, I this is such a great question i struggle with this because there is deep within me a longing for clarity and um a solution to whatever it is that ails is my life or the problems of this world that i'm currently obsessed on and so um yeah i think there's a sense of wanting to find the clear answers and part of Part of what I'm learning right now is to what, it, what does it mean to encourage, to foster this idea that instead of uh, finding rock-solid answers, I'm going to just have to embrace paradox and mystery. And, um, and that's part of how we have f- tried to frame this month is to say we can just recognize the fact that the world is going to be full of tensions and mysteries that we can't resolve. And sometimes that's the most beautiful way to live. And some of this, I think we just have to try out because I think these can be seemingly erudite philosophical ideas, abstract. And we really need to think about what does it look like embodied? What does it look like in life? And part of um, judging and dismantling the harmful effects of patriarchy is to say, like, what's been the impact of this? Mm. How, has it, how has it literally, like physically, materially, shaped and misshaped people's lives. So I wonder if we could talk about this a little bit. Like, how have you seen, because you've been in this world and, and you're proximate to it still in many ways, how have you seen the effects of patriarchy in the lives of real people?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really big <laughs> question. And mm-hmm. I, I was, I don't know. I keep thinking about what you were saying about this this whole line that, Complementarian Christians have around like 2,000 years of church orthodoxy, right? Like we are the orthodox ones. We are the ones who've gotten it right. How dare you challenge us? Like you think you're Mm -hmm. better than 2,000 years of church history? I mean, that's literally the question they're asking people like me. That's a a big burden to put on me when I was 20 years old, right? You think you're better than all of us Mm -hmm. because you're sad that women, Mm -hmm. you know, have to be second class citizens i'm sorry like this is just the way the world is and so thinking about people who who grew up in that world i don't know kelly brown douglas actually in her book really unlocked something for me because i also Mm -hmm. want just the perfect answer to fix all these things and i feel like she was just saying like we we have a duty to interrupt anti-blackness right so when you get overwhelmed with like wait, all of my spiritual heroes, I'm not supposed to read them anymore because, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she wasn't saying, like, here's how you deal with everybody on an individual basis. She was saying, we just need to be honest about the anti-blackness that is in every element of our society. Right. Be honest about that. Name it. Bring it up like that's to me it seems like one of the first steps and so i think yeah. we can also take that to um the patriarchy and say we just need to name it to bring mm. it up and to interrupt these narratives of you know 2000 years of orthodox christian yeah. teaching because i think once you're somebody who has studied race um right all of a sudden the 2000 years of church orthodoxy becomes yeah right extremely right. complicated like yeah. slavery was a part of Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. So that's why it is, it is wonderful to si- to kind of talk about and think about gender right after talking about race, because uh, one crack, right, in this narrative mm-hmm. can allow other uh, imaginations into, and so that's, you know, maybe mm-hmm. that's how I am, am viewing intersectionality right now. But learning about race has helped me to combat the patriarchy. Honestly, it really, Mm -hmm. really has. And I I just think that's great. And I really hope, um, you know, that can be true for more people. But for me, Mm -hmm. I do think it was the question of race and how Christianity has upheld um, white supremacy, right? It just, it makes that argument totally... It just, that impact, that argument no longer impacts me, which is interesting. It impacted yes. me so much at age 20. And now I'm yeah. just like, who cares? You yeah. guys got so much wrong. I don't think you have mm-hmm. ground to stand on anymore. Um, anyways, yeah. that's just my, me yeah. personally. What about yeah. you?
0: Um, well, okay, let me put it this way. What you just described is not a slippery slope. Right. You're not saying I found this and I'm going to go down this hill and I'm just like cause that, that's going to be the that's going to be the knee jerk response of so many people. So oh, many people I have slip and
1: slided down the slippery slope. It's true, yeah. Peter.
0: It's kind but of But what if true. you just switch the metaphor. What if you just switch the metaphor to say, oh, I'm seeing I'm unlocking another door and I'm going farther uh, in or I'm I'm actually seeing another piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. and I'm putting it together. And, I'm, and by piecing these different parts together, I'm seeing a more whole picture. And so metaphors do a lot. And so if you just switch the metaphor, it can transform from this really harmful thing to this really life-giving thing. And I think this is what people do. Like, And there's so much rhetorical argumentation happening in so many of these conversations where people will say, it's 2,000 years of history. And this is coming from Protestants who, in the next breath, will have no problem saying... The church for 1,600 years got a lot of things wrong, and it's only in the past 400 years that we've been able yes. to recover or, or retrieve a, m- a more pure understanding of the gospel. And so, oh, um, again, like just holding people accountable to say, what do we really mean, and what is the material impact? And some of that is recognizing, like, are we really okay with women who do the same work that men do, Receiving twenty or thirty percent less in terms of wages, like is that is that a fair system? And can we just agree that no matter who you are, there ought to be something inside of you that recoils at that um, very basic form of inequity? Um, because I, at that point, you're not talking about these abstract ideas that are very slippery, and you can sort of move and 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 toggle pieces that are more in line with your own arguments, but you're actually having to deal with the state of the world.
1: Wow. You really brought it to a concrete place, didn't you? And as you even said that about wages, it's just like, oh my gosh, just the things we have accepted right, in our life, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to um, push back against all of them. yeah I was like wow I don't even think about the wage gap it's like I maybe Mm. I'm afraid of being an angry feminist so like feminists were like Mm. a curse word in my house growing up um Mm. and I grew up with a dad who was really into Rush Limbaugh and all that and so when Hillary Clinton lost um you know the election I was like I don't think people know the level of animosity um conservatives have towards what they view to be a, a liberal woman um to be just yeah there's another example mm-hmm. of how how this stuff comes to impact us right is <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh yeah
0: yeah it goes deep it goes mm-hmm. deep into sort of our very basic notions or images of what of being a virtuous person might look like
1: yeah i mean my dad like used the term feminazi all the time right for oh. a woman who was liberal so yeah there's lots of things that that can keep us in these spaces and and keep us wanting relationship wanting community and so i'm just trying to give myself a little grace here even as i've been talking to you it's like well there's a reason why i didn't rage against the patriarchy when i was 12 because i wanted my dad to like me you know i don't know maybe that sounds too sad but it's kind of true and that's probably true for a lot of people you know who grew up uh, in these systems
0: well, it's one of the truest things that you could say is that you want people in your family to not only like you, but to love you and to accept yeah. you for who you are. Right? Mm-hmm. There ought to be like nothing, absolutely nothing about that that comes across as wrong. It's the truest thing that you can say. And I think this is the problem that so many of us grapple with is what happens when we express ourselves or when we find ourselves... Um, Experiencing or wanting to put on identities that don't uh, win the approval of the people around us, uh, and we're put into these boxes. and And I think part of the work that we're trying to do is, um, what does liberation from those boxes look like? And it's going to be hard. Um, maybe as we, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Danielle, for just coming. Um, to this hard place with your heart open even as you you know carry the weight of so many different things um, that's happening in your life and in the world but maybe one of the ways that we could close pointing to two other readings that we're doing so we're um, reading uh, I think just the introductory chapter from Nancy Cott's Public Vows A History of Marriage in the Nation and the reason I love this reading is it dispels the the mythical notion that marriage is this Thing that has been unchanging throughout human history. And she yeah. basically tells the story of marriage in U.S. history and all the ways in which it's changed so many times over its very brief span. So that's a really instructive text for our topic. And the other one is Craig Williams' Marriage Between Males, where the author dispels the notion that there was such a thing as same-sex marriage in the ancient world. And what Craig Williams is saying is, there was no such thing. There was no socially acceptable, uh, non-subversive form of marriage between same-sex partners. And therefore, what Paul was writing against was something that was always gonna be socially and legally uh, problematic, okay? The reverse of that argument is that when we think about legal marriage today, that there's no way that Paul could have condemned something that did not exist in his time, yeah, and so that's another way of getting into the conversation around um, gender and sexuality, so lots of great resources and uh, far reaching conversations that I hope we can have in our community
1: that's so great, and I just want to maybe end with with one thought, just um. Even this topic, I'm thinking about it bleeding into next month, right, when we're going to talk about economics and justice and, and all these things. And, and just, I just want to keep thinking about this idea of what happens when you're no longer useful, right, to the dominant culture. I think this is true of Christian patriarchy. This is true of capitalism. Uh, what happens when you decide... I. I don't want to be useful anymore, or I can't be useful to this system anymore, and and some of what can happen to you culturally and community-wise. So there's that, and also I just want to say I uh, interviewed uh, Emmy Kegler for the person to talk to about spiritual practices, and she's this amazing queer Lutheran pastor who has been so intentional about things like um, the sacraments, and uh, she just has a great perspective, so be on the lookout for that interview to come out soon
0: all sounds very exciting. There is a continuous thread that we're going to have to keep on exploring. Um, So thank you for all the good work that you're doing, Danielle, and for showing up for this conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. And I just I just love all the books you pick out for us and all the conversations we're having. Thanks for making it a safe place to dive into this stuff.